Hello, my name is Beth Shaw and my husband Steve and I attend the six o'clock service. Today we're reading from 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 13. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Well, people often say that they'll make peace with God when they're old, that they'll live how they want until then. But we simply don't know how long we've got. As James states in chapter four of his letter, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Only God knows how long we have. And the brevity of life means that we need to consider our mortality rather than ignore it and be left unprepared. The American author, William Sarian, achieved great success in his field, winning a Pulitzer Prize for his 1939 play, The Time of Your Life. His father, who died when he was young, was a preacher. But as Sarian lay dying in New York in 1981, riddled with cancer, he reflected on his lack of preparation for his death. And one evening he placed a phone call to Associated Press and after identifying himself to the reporter, he posed a question. It was a final word to be used after his death, which occurred a few days later. He said, everybody has got to die, but I have always believed an exception would be made in my case. Now what? And then he hung up the phone. Compare that with the great reformer Martin Luther's daughter, Magdalena. She was 14 years old 
she became very sick and lay dying. And Luther prayed, Oh God, how I love her so, but nevertheless, thy will be done. And then he turned to his daughter and said, Magdalena, would you rather be with me or would you rather go and be with your father in heaven? She answered, Father, as God wills. Luther held her in his arms as she passed away. And as they later laid her to rest, he said, Oh, my dear Magdalena, you will rise and shine like the stars in the sun. How strange to be so sorrowful and yet to know that all is at peace, that all is well. She came to faith in her youth before it was too late to remember God. And God also reminds us in his word that his son could return at any moment. Life is so brief and the second coming of Christ is imminent. And so we need to respond to God while we have time. And so the question that we're going to consider today is this. Why should the brevity of life compel us to share the gospel? Why should the brevity of life compel us to share the gospel? And the first answer to that question is this. Because Christ will return and judgment will follow. Notice again what Peter records in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 to 7. We read, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being. The earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. From the first century, right up until the present day, there have always been those who have scoffed at the very idea of the second coming. And the scoffing that Peter notes goes beyond just mere words because the Greek term implies physical persecution as well. This antagonism is a result of such scoffers following their evil desires, Peter says. But you see, to deny the promise of Christ's return is also to reject the judgment that will follow. And while it's true in verse 4, as the scoffers say, that life just seems to go on from generation to generation, there is a deliberate forgetfulness regarding God's faithfulness to his promises and the power of his word. However regular and unchanging conditions on earth may appear, however solid and immovable the world itself may seem, God does from time to time decisively intervene. Firstly, did you notice in verse 5, the power of God's word is seen in creation that we are part of. The heavens and the earth were formed simply by God's word. And secondly, having created the world, he destroyed much of that world by water. God has already shown his commitment to judge as demonstrated by the time of Noah. As Peter points out in verse 6, and so God's track record of keeping his promises, even with regard to judging humanity, 
should be proofed that the promised return of Christ and the accompanying judgment are certain. In verse 7, Peter highlights that the judgment to come uh, will not be marked by the flooding waters like in Noah's day, but rather this time by fire. And the phrase, uh, being kept for the day of judgment, is a guarantee of what is to come. Because the term being kept is more literally being under guard. It's the picture of security of a prison that no one can break into. Nothing will thwart God's coming judgment following Christ's return. Nothing can possibly interfere with what is divinely ordained. And so those who leave God out of their calculations will one day suddenly discover that he is true to his word. And so in summary, God's word is powerful and his promises are sure. God is not only the creator, but also the judge. And so if God's word clearly teaches us that Christ will definitely return and judgment will follow, then we need to take heed. We need to respond to God before it's too late. Our lives are just like a passing season. In 1965, American folk band The Birds released the single Turn, Turn, Turn to Everything There Is a Season. And it went to number one on the Billboard charts in the United States. But it's a song that's adapted almost entirely from the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes 3. And its popularity at the time when it was released was thought to be due to the escalation of the Vietnam War, with the song being viewed as a plea for peace. And perhaps because of this song, people have often viewed the poetic words of Ecclesiastes 3 positively in the last few decades. And yet, like 2 Peter 3, they should remind us of the necessity of being prepared to face the end. You see, in verses 1 to 4 of Ecclesiastes 3, we read the following. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. I think the words here actually highlight the fragile nature of humanity. And so the message is quite confronting, actually. There's this overwhelming feeling of an endless load of fleeting cycles, just like the passing of the seasons. Everything lasts but a little while, because dying also has its time. And so these descriptions put our world into context. Our earthly lives are just a blip on the scale. We have such a short stay on the stage of life. And so it's tempting for our secular world to think that somehow we can control our destiny, that we can somehow extend life. You know, that if we didn't start wars or if we shared our scarce food resources better or if we we drove more carefully or we exercised more or doctors found a cure to cancer or the ambulance arrived quicker, then we could go on living. But it's not as if we can stop death. One medical professor who appeared on Andrew Denton's show Enough Rope uh, back in 2010 stated, even if we cured all diseases, 
We'd only extend the human lifespan by about seven to 10 years these days. What's killing us now is aging. The reality is that our days have been limited to 70 or 80 years on average, as Psalm 90 tells us. And nothing can change that reality. And the application from this first point is that things won't always just continue as they have. Our lives are momentary vapours, and they might be even shorter if Christ returns in our lifetime. And so the urgency for people to hear the gospel and respond before their lives draw to a close is crucial, because at that point the opportunity has been lost and judgment will follow. There just are no second chances, no extra time decisions, no coming back for a second life to get things right and respond to God rather than scoff at him. The Bible is quite clear on this over and over. For example, in Hebrews 9 verse 27, we read, people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And so knowing that death or Christ's return marks the end of any opportunity to respond to God before the judgment day, Christians should feel compelled to share the gospel with our non-Christian friends and family. We, above all, know that time is short and we long for them to respond. And so we need to urgently share rather than thinking there is just plenty of time. One day I'll get round to that big conversation with them. Which brings us to a second answer to our question of why the brevity of life should compel us to share the gospel. Because God is patiently allowing time for people to repent. God is patiently allowing time for people to repent. So notice again what is stated in 2 Peter 3 from verses 8 to 10. Peter writes, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord... With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. See, Peter encourages his readers here to see that there is a distinction between divine and human timescales. You know, our outlook is limited by our narrow sense of time, while God's perspective is eternal. And so the apostle picks up the words of Psalm 90 here regarding a thousand years being like a day for God. But he makes a different point. While Moses in Psalm 90 contrasts the brevity of human life with the eternity of God, Peter is contrasting the impatience of human expectations regarding the return of Jesus with the purposeful patience of God. In essence, the two millennium that have passed since Christ's earthly ministry is like the passing of a mere two days in God's timeline. And more importantly, in verse 9, the delay is to our advantage because God's motivation is to see more people come to repentance. Our world could have already been wrapped up by God, but instead 
He is patiently giving us more time to share with people, more time for people to turn back to him and avoid perishing. I mean, here we really see God's heart for the lost as we're told that he does not want anyone to perish. I mean, surely this should compel us as believers to take hold of this God-given opportunity as once time runs out, those who reject God will perish. And people perishing is a heavy thought and it reminds us of the seriousness of sin, just how high the stakes are. And the reason that people perish, that the ungodly are reserved for destruction in this passage is because of the entry of sin, because of our rejection of God's rule. These verses remind us of humanity's fall in Genesis 3. So while you will never read a death certificate that states that the cause of death is sin, it is the root cause for all of our brief lives. This is what the Bible consistently teaches. Paul summarizes that point, for example, in Romans 6.23, when he states that the wages of sin is death. And so the purpose of our brief lives in this fallen world, where even our best years will have trouble and sorrow, is to turn back to God. And the clock is ticking. Notice in verse 10 that the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord refers to Christ's return in glory to judge and to bless. And its arrival will be without warning. God's patience will eventually be exhausted. And then there will be no time to prepare, no second chance. The return of Christ will be sudden, we're told, like a thief breaking into a house. And that could be as soon as today. We're told that that day will be marked by a cosmic catastrophe on a cataclysmic scale where the heavens will disappear, the elements will be destroyed, and the earth laid bare by fire. But for those who have repented, for those who have received Christ, there is an anticipation of a new heavens and a new earth in verse 13. Well, how are believers to apply these sobering truths in our lives today? Well, the Apostle Peter tells us how we should respond in verses 11 to 15, how to live in the light of the fast approaching end of our lives. Firstly, God's people ought to prepare themselves for the new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells by living holy lives in verse 11, by living holy lives in the present, by making every effort to be found spotless and at peace with God as we await Christ's return. And secondly, we have to bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation in verse 15. We have to take hold of the delay of Christ's return and hold out the good news to a world that is perishing so that people might have the opportunity to turn back to God. And having been rescued from our sin through repentance and faith in Jesus, we should want to tell everybody about God's undeserved favour to us, to share our story. Anna Sophia Terja was one of 21 children born in northern Finland. Her half-sister Maria was married to an American and was living in Ohio. 
And after a visit back home to Finland, she and her American husband, John, enticed Anna to come back with them to America. John purchased her a $50 third-class ticket for a passage on a ship. Anna was 18 years old when she boarded the Titanic in Southampton, England. And late on that fateful Sunday night, April 14, 1912, she felt a shudder and a shake. And soon afterward, her roommate's brother uh, knocked on the door and told them that something was wrong. They should put on warm clothing, put on their life jackets, and their little group dressed and headed for the upper decks. At one point, a crew member tried to order them back, but they refused to obey, and he didn't argue with them. She didn't fully understand what was going on because she had limited English, but a sailor would eventually pick her up and put her in the second last lifeboat to be launched, which was packed. She heard loud explosions as the lights went out and the ship went under. And her most haunting memory was that of the screams and cries of people perishing in the water. And she would often retell the story to her family and would start crying. Eventually picked up by the rescue ship, the Carpathia, she kept looking for her roommates afterwards, but she never saw either of them again. She would go on to marry in Ohio and she refused to join in any lawsuits over the losses. She said that she had her life and that was compensation enough. She'd been rescued. And every year on the April anniversary, she would sit her children down, eventually seven of them, to tell the story again. She was just so thankful that God had allowed her to be rescued. And the phrase that she would always close with and repeat throughout her life was, I can never understand why God would have spared a poor Finnish girl. Well, I want to say to you today that every believer has a story of spiritual rescue to tell, which is just as dramatic, and we need to share it and live in the light of it. As Psalm 90 verse 14 memorably states, Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Well, what does such wise living look like? The wise person knows their time is short. They live their life accordingly in the fear of the Lord. They're living for Christ. They're pointing others to him with urgency. We are to number our days on earth just as carefully as we will count out our holidays. I remember returning from a holiday a few years ago when all of my side of the family gathered at Hamilton Island in Queensland to celebrate my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, all 21 of us. It was beautiful one day and perfect the next, just like the ad says. And the six nights went so quickly with the days being filled with swimming and water sports. We didn't want it to end because we were enjoying every moment, appreciating each hour. It was just so sad to get back on the plane. And God is telling us in Psalm 90, verse 14, that we should view our whole lives the same way. Don't even count the years or the months, but each day as the next could be our last. Well, as we conclude and reflect on the urgency of calling people to repent before their brief lives have passed, our hearts need to be captured by God's gracious rescue plan. Only then will we share the wonderful offer of salvation that is eternal. 
in contrast to the fleeting emptiness of this world. Our lives are brief, and they might be even shorter if Christ returns in our lifetime. And so the urgency for people to turn in repentance and faith can never be overstated. Why should the brevity of life compel us to share the gospel? Because Christ will return and judgment will follow. And because God is patiently allowing time for people to repent. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are a patient and compassionate God, that you long for people to turn in repentance to you. And Lord, you are delaying the wrapping up of our world for that very reason. And so we pray that we might live in the light of the end, that we might live lives that point people to you, that they be marked by such holiness that we stand out as different. And in the midst of that, that we'd also hold out this gospel news, this wonderful good news of life eternal through your Son. Help us to see the urgency, to feel the weight of the opportunities that lie before us each day. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.